and welcome to the 100th episode of The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we explore what our scriptures have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression. What do our sacred stories have to teach us about our role in resistance, in showing up, in liberation? This podcast is designed to be a resource for white people who are realizing that part of what it means to follow Jesus in this time and in this country is to listen to, learn from, and join in with the struggle against racism and white supremacy. We welcome your feedback and especially appreciate feedback from and accountability to listeners of color. My name is Nicola Torbett, and I live near the long-decimated Ohlone village of Huchin in what is now known as Oakland, California. I'm an active member of the lay-led First Congregational Church of Oakland, and I participate in a whole host of rabble-rousing activities in resistance to white supremacy, xenophobia, misogyny, homophobia and transphobia, and U.S. imperialism. You can read more from me at my WordPress site, which is called The Longing is the Compass. I am also a member of Showing Up for Racial Justice, or SURGE. This podcast is a project of SURGE Faith and SURGE Action. I'm grateful to be with you wherever you are listening to this right now as we remember and live out this last dramatic leg of Jesus' inexorable journey toward Jerusalem and his final confrontation with the powers. I don't know if anyone else is experiencing this, but this year, every Lenten lectionary passage reads as bittersweet to me, beautiful and sad and charged with longing. Last week, the lectionary gave us Mary's anointing of Jesus' body, right? An act of almost inexpressible tenderness for this precious man whom she loved and is about to lose. It reminds me of a song I learned recently called Grief and Praise. I learned it at a workshop that was called Liberation Logic, Let's Stop Doing Diversity Work on the Death Star. Yes, you heard that right. I'm going to say the subtitle again because it's so good. Let's Stop Doing Diversity Work on the Death Star. As you can tell by that title, you really got to check the workshop out. Both the workshop and the song are brilliant. I'll link to more information in the transcript about trainers Aaron Goggins and Rebecca Mintz, as well as the writer of the song, Osprey. But for now, I will just say that the song takes me immediately to the sweetest spot in my spiritual practice, the place where my love for living beings intersects with my grief for the way we are all always in the process of passing away. It's the sweet, piercing gratitude place. Grief and praise together. And when I'm in touch with those, I am found. I am home. I was lost, but now I'm found, as the songwriter sings. Martin Prechtel a teacher of Mayan wisdom now based in New Mexico, says that grief and praise always go together. If you are praising, he says, your grief has to be present for the stakes to be high enough for the praise to be legitimate. Your praise can only be genuine and deep if grief is also present. 
I feel that. When I'm in touch with grief and praise together, I am truly present, open and available to whatever the Spirit wants to do with me. So I want us to start off there this week. What is it that you love and that is at risk right now? We never have to look very far. It's usually right here. This week I've been walking dogs as I do. That's how I make my living in the Redwoods and Chaparral of Northern California. And as I walk, I'm thinking about the next fire season. As you may know, climate change is bringing us increasingly devastating out-of-control wildfires throughout the West, including here in California. I am walking through this landscape that I love and praying for it to survive one more year. Grief and praise. Everything that we love is at risk. Everything that we love is at risk. And if we don't speak up about it, If we don't take action, the very stones will cry out. That's what it says in this week's lectionary. I tell you, if these who follow me were silent, the stones would cry out. This is from Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40, which is the lectionary passage for this Sunday, Palm Sunday. And these are the words of Jesus as he rides a colt into Jerusalem, surrounded by a crowd of followers who are praising and calling out. Now, I don't know exactly what these followers were thinking about as they shouted and praised. I've read some commentators who suggest that the crowd was a little bit deluded, that they expected a different kind of triumph in the coming week, a military triumph, a coup of some sort that would overthrow the oppressive Roman rule and install Jesus as the rightful king, descendant of David, king of a newly liberated and renewed Israel. They were nurturing dreams of revolution. And maybe that is what they are expecting. I think I've preached the text that way in the past. Certainly, I have my own fantasies about what liberation would look and feel and taste like. But this year, I'm reading this text differently. Maybe it's just the mood I'm in, this mixture of grief and praise and gratitude and longing. Or maybe it's the state of the world right now. But I want to give these jubilant followers a little more credit. Let's assume that they weren't stupid. There was no army with them, not even a guerrilla force. They carried no weapons. And they are striding into a city heavily occupied by Roman soldiers. They knew better than we do how the military presence would have swelled for this Passover time. Nothing is more dangerous than a bunch of worshippers with their minds on freedom, right? So at Passover time, Rome spared no shock or awe. Thanks to the work of Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan, a lot of us now know that Jesus' humble procession was mirrored on the other side of the city by Pontius Pilate's grandiose military parade, 
complete with armored horses and chariots and ostentatious weaponry. I imagine it was something like this that Donald Trump had in mind when he was pushing for a military parade in our own country after seeing one in North Korea, a show of force that would keep any potential revolutionaries in line. So the Roman occupying force would have been more than prepared for this ragtag bunch of of followers of an itinerant teacher riding a donkey. So it seems really unlikely that this band was harboring any serious hope of military conquest that would liberate Judea from Rome. What then were they up to? And what does it suggest for our own resistance practice? Let's imagine that these folks knew exactly what the risks were, parading into the center of power with a wanted man, this teacher who was giving voice to all that they knew deep down was true, but never imagined they could say out loud. Namely, that we are meant to live so differently than this. Let's imagine that they knew the risks of keeping this kind of company, and let's imagine that they did it anyway. And not only did it, but gave it their absolute all, just as Mary did when she lavished on Jesus the most expensive lotion, grief and praise. The scriptures say they took off their cloaks and lay them on the donkey and on the ground in front of Jesus. Now, I don't want to shock you. But if these are poor people, some of them from Bethany even, which means house of the poor, they probably only had one cloak. So when they took their cloaks off, they were naked. They walked naked into Jerusalem. No illusions about what was to come, but absolutely determined to honor this incarnation of God's power anyway. Maybe they did all of this because they knew deep down that he probably was going to be killed, that he was going to give himself for them and for their freedom. Now I know I'm coming dangerously close to the more conservative readings of this text. Lots of people read this display of homage to Jesus as testament to the one who would pay the price for all of our sins. That's not exactly my reading. I'll say more about that in the Good Friday episode. But I do think there is something very deep and profound happening here. People bearing witness to self-sacrificing love and self-determination. Jesus had an internal locus of control. He was subject to no one. And his love obeyed no human limits. This jubilant crowd was bearing witness to that and, I think, being inspired to join in with it. I think I've felt something similar myself, not what they would have experienced with Jesus exactly, but some faint echo of it anyway. When I heard about those two Catholic workers, Jessica Resnick and Ruby Montoya, who turned themselves in after destroying a whole lot of equipment, to sabotage the Dakota Access Pipeline in Iowa. Or when I saw those 13 climbers who dangled off the bridge in Portland to block the shell drilling rig that was bound for the Arctic. The feeling is awe in the old-fashioned sense of wonder and terror combined. 
Deep down, I know that this is what love looks like when it is stripped of sentimentality and given the freedom to express itself fully, no matter the cost. Deep down, I know this is what I'm made for, what we are all made for, to love like this, to stand with suffering people and planet like this, to be fully alive and aware and open and responsive like this. And it is only fear of the powers that holds us back. In fear of the powers, we hold back from fully feeling the grief and praise. These crowds around Jesus are breaking through that fear, stepping boldly forward anyway at great risk to themselves and everyone around them. Which is why the Pharisees try to silence them. Now I want to say a word about the Pharisees and what they are up to here because As often as they appear in scripture, I didn't really understand that much about them until I put my mind to studying them. The Pharisees get a bad rap, but they were actually a resistance movement. They were adherents of one of several different resistance movements that were all afoot at Jesus' time, and their particular brand of resistance looked like strict adherence to the Jewish law. It was a way of resisting assimilation into Roman culture. They were against assimilation on the one hand, and they were also against the economic, political, and religious elite of their own people, who were considered the rightful rulers of Judea. And that put them in a very tricky position. Sometimes their opposition to the Judean elite put them in cahoots with Rome, since Rome unseated that elite element, even though The Pharisees also opposed Roman cultural colonization, a very tricky tension. I want to suggest that the Pharisees are actually a little bit like most liberal and progressive white people in the way that we are inherently conflicted. We oppose racism. It is viscerally wrong to us. And yet our own self-interest aligns us with white supremacy. I'm going to say that again. A lot of us liberal and progressive white people oppose racism. We believe it is wrong. And yet our own self-interest aligns us with the system of white supremacy, which after all works for us in most immediate ways. And often what this means is that we find ourselves policing the expression of protesters who have no such allegiance. We worry that they are too loud, too outspoken, too destructive. And we may not even be conscious that we are actually defending our own self-interest. We think others are pushing too hard, too fast, when really they are just threatening the power systems in which we have maybe unconsciously put our faith, like, say, the police, or at least here in Oakland, a pro-development city government. This conflict of interest, this tortured, mostly subconscious loyalty, makes it hard for us to praise genuinely. We are tortured, rigid, numb, unable to feel grief or praise or much of anything except maybe anger and anxiety, which often manifests as depression. I don't know. I'm not a psychologist. 
but I'm part of a church where we attempt to do serious praise, like the hands in the air, belt it out, cry and dance it out sort of praise. And it's often really hard for white and middle-class people to go there. Now, I know that in white Pentecostal churches, people do go there, but those are usually poor people, not middle-class urbanites. Of course, I'm speaking in generalizations here, but I wonder, how easy is it for you to praise? It's something that I've had to practice, work at, over time. I remember the very day I decided just to move my hips a little bit in worship, just a little bit. And that loosening up is a practice that is still unfolding for me. There's this throwaway line in the most recent episode of How to Survive the End of the World, a super important podcast by Adrian Marie Brown and Autumn Brown. You are listening to that, right? I'll link to it in the transcript. Anyway, there's this line where I think it's Adrian says something like, of course, when we meet even a well-meaning white person, we know deep down that this person has been socialized into a very deep cowardice that is very hard to overcome. The line goes by really quickly, but it made me gasp because I think it is so very true at levels that are hard to grasp intellectually. The fear of breaking rank with whiteness lives below the consciousness in me. It's in my body. I don't really understand it. I wonder about something that Unitarian Universalist theologian Tandeka writes about in Learning to be White, where she likens the socialization of white children into whiteness to a form of child abuse. I don't know. It's a generous interpretation for sure, but I wonder, is this socialization a kind of trauma that, like all trauma, lives in white bodies, the bodies of adult white children, you could say? I don't know. In the book, The Prophetic Imagination, Walter Brueggemann goes to great lengths to explore the ways that domination culture will suppress genuine feeling and foster numbness among the people. Referring to Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, which is a passage that follows immediately upon this week's lectionary text, Brueggemann writes, Jesus knew that we numb ones must always learn again, A, that weeping must be real because endings are real, and B, that weeping permits newness. His weeping permits the kingdom to come. You see, the prevailing systems, the dominant culture, want, it, want us to make it seem like everything is just fine, is functioning as it should, as it must. Nothing to see here. Shush now. Stop making such a fuss. In trying to tamp down the grief and praise of those accompanying Jesus, the Pharisees, and we like them, work against liberation. But Jesus says, if these are silent, the stones will cry out. Of course, the stones are crying out. The stones and the orangutans, the sea turtles and the polar bears. 
The weather pattern, patterns themselves are crying out with floods and droughts, superstorms and cyclones and hurricanes, wildfires and earthquakes. When the world is being run by people who will not cry out, who cannot grieve or praise genuinely, and who violently press down those who try, the stones will cry out and ecosystems will collapse. The climate disaster we now face is intricately bound up with an imperial consciousness that in this country is called whiteness. We who are white have to learn how to feel again, how to grieve and praise and cry and shout. I think we even need to acknowledge that our situation is on the face of it hopeless. We are powerless individually to solve the interlocking set of disasters with which we are now faced. We need to learn, like the disciples in the Palm Sunday accounts, to call out, Hosanna, save us, save us. And we need to know that our salvation is not coming from the centers of power. It's not coming from Jerusalem, that instead it is coming from Bethany, the house of the poor, and all those who have been disenfranchised by the systems we have held in place. We need to humble ourselves enough to know that we actually need, desperately need, all those whom we have locked out and systematically tried to repress and kill. It's hard. It's humbling. And then, when we can admit that, We need to join in with them as fellow disciples, stepping out boldly alongside those who are coming to save, calling out in grief and praise. Amen. I wouldn't be the first by any means to suggest that this procession into Jerusalem in the lead up to Passover was, in contemporary language, a nonviolent direct action. And it seems one that they have made preparations for. Near the beginning of the passage, the disciples are instructed to go to a certain house where they will find a colt. And if they are questioned as to why they are taking that colt, they are to say, the Lord needs it. That might be a kind of password designed to protect the security of the action. Some of my comrades here in Oakland have fantasized about commandeering, say, a Google bus. In case you don't know, Google and other tech companies use these luxurious unmarked buses to transport their workers to and from the East Bay where they live, and by the way, are driving gentrification, to the South Bay where they work, where the tech companies are located. So we are imagining taking one of these buses, maybe for, say, displaced people to live in. And if we are questioned about it, saying simply, the Lord needs it, which of course is true. There are so many things, right, that the Lord needs. I think this tactic is underutilized. But anyway, I imagine the procession itself as a kind of pageant, 
an almost farcical imitation of Pontius Pilate's ostentatious display, but one that nevertheless has deep spiritual resonance. It's rooted in the prophetic tradition, echoing Zechariah 9, verse 9, which says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion! Shout, daughter Jerusalem! See your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You might even call the Palm Sunday procession a liturgical direct action. That's a term coined by Bill Wiley Kellerman to describe actions that blur the lines between protest and public worship. Palm Sunday offers a ripe opportunity to organize this kind of action. In 2016, the Community Renewal Society in Chicago organized Palm Sunday marches on all 25 police precincts to protest the killing of Laquan McDonald and to call for stricter police oversight in the city. My own organization, Seminary of the Street, organized a Palm Sunday processional in 2012 as part of the Occupy movement, calling on Oakland city officials to choose which parade they wanted to be a part of. Pilots Parade of the Elite, made up of Wall Street bankers and high-powered business interests, or Jesus Parade of the People, calling for relief from economic exploitation. So as you pray and praise and feel your way through this lead-up to Holy Week, we are asking you to consider the possibility of liturgical direct action in your own community. Gather some comrades together this week and think about how you might use the deep spiritual resonance of this time, this holy season, to disrupt business as usual, to invite people into liberatory communal grief and praise, to call organizations and institutions to account for ways that they are perpetuating white supremacy and other forms of harm. For inspiration, I'd encourage you to check out the website for the Center for Prophetic Imagination in Minneapolis and the Facebook page for Second Acts, a liturgical direct action group. You might also Google the Plowshares Movement to see examples of how liturgical direct action has been used in the struggle against the military-industrial complex. Think about who is committing harm that disproportionately falls on people of color. There are so many examples. Most of our city halls and police departments are implicated, as are corporations that have ties to the Trump administration or otherwise are involved in lobbying for harmful policies, as well as corporations that are directly or indirectly funding or supplying the police, the military, the private prison industry, oil pipelines and ICE, or Immigrations and Customs Enforcement. There's a call from the Anishinaabe peoples of the northern Midwest to protest Wells Fargo's funding of Line 3, yet another pipeline currently threatening sacred lands and waters. Once you have a target in mind, you can begin planning your action. I'll link to some helpful resources in the transcript, and we'll also be sharing more, I think, in the other Holy Week episodes. Please let us know how it goes, and also your reactions to this podcast. For this 100th episode, we've created a listener survey. Can you spare a few minutes to share your feedback with us? Go to 
bit.ly backslash TWIR100 survey. I'll say that again, bit.ly backslash TWIR100 survey to weigh in. You can also always communicate with us by posting on our Facebook or SoundCloud pages. We value your input and ideas, and we especially appreciate feedback from and accountability to listeners of color. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org, and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. Transcripts are available on our website, which include references, credits, and copyright information. And hey, did you know that we're not the only ones podcasting about dismantling white supremacy and the intersections of our activism, faith, and community building? We encourage you to check out Podcast for a Just World, specifically their Lenten series, Sacred Conversations to End Racism. The podcast is produced by our friend Tracy Howe Wispelway, and the Lenten series is co-hosted by Reverend Dr. Velda Love, Minister for Racial Justice for the United Church of Christ. Podcast for a Just World is available on iTunes and SoundCloud backslash for a just world. The music you hear on this podcast is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding. We are building up a new world. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, and it's being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song for our podcast. Our sound editor this week is Maxwell Pearl. Thanks for all you do, Max. As always, blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Until next time, I'm Nicola Torbett.